Hello and welcome, y'all. This is Real Friends Who Read Books, the book club podcast where my friends and I read books and talk about them. Every other week, we're diving into one of our picks, exploring the themes, characters, and whatever else comes along the way. You know, it's a book club without the snacks. I'm your host, Erica, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Courtney and Mary Page. This is Real Friends Who Read Books. These are my real friends, and we've got some books to read. Let's get to it. Up This Week is Evicted by Matthew Desmond. And hey, one last thing. Share this episode with one of your real friends. The book summary. Thank you so much, Goodreads. In Evicted... Matthew Desmond follows eight Milwaukee families as they struggle to keep a roof over their heads. Evicted transforms our understanding of poverty and economic exploitation while providing fresh ideas for solving one of 21st century America's most devastating problems. Its unforgettable scenes of hope and loss remind us of the centrality of home, without which nothing else is possible. Okay, friends, this one has 76,000 ratings on Goodreads and 9.5 thousand reviews. Listeners of our latest vibe check will notice that I have very recently discovered Goodreads in full, and while it was published in 2016, this book remains remarkably relevant. Also, big apologies to all of the previous episodes where I got the published date wrong on this one. I've been saying 2017 for a minute. We're all doing our best over here. Turns out mine's not great. (laughs) Anyway, I was searching for the perfect way to kick this episode off, and I think it's this Mary Oliver poem that Goodreads reviewer Beth B. shared a couple weeks ago. I tell you this to break your heart, by which I mean only that it break open and never close again to the rest of the world. That's it. That's Beth's full review. So, vibe check. How are we? Um, hi. Uh, yeah, this was an, <laughs> this was an eye-opener for me. Um, absolutely heartbroken. And uh, not going to lie, I'm super pissed. Uh, we'll talk about it throughout the episode, I'm sure. But the fact that others are getting rich off the business of evictions fills me with such a fiery rage that I don't really know what to do with it. Right. (laughs) So so that's the next point. That's the next part. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This was a tough one. It was heartbreaking, just eye-opening, difficult, but necessary. I feel like I could really see this as a documentary. I know it was basically like written kind of like a documentary, Mm -hmm. but I would love to see this like as a documentary film. Yeah, Yeah. this would really translate so well. Yeah, put faces to it to like for people who need that for that empathetic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you can like really see like the people behind the stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Learning about the process of how an eviction actually is carried out was just gutting. I think like I've heard about it in concept and we all kind of know about the practice of it but you don't really stop to think about the mechanics of it and what it looks like the tiny little details when you break it down and it's heartbreaking and just capitalism is gross man like the entire concept of bonded storage and turning a profit off of people in the situation and making them make these impossible decisions of like do you want someone to you know, pay interest on holding your stuff or do you want to see your stuff out at the curb? I just hate it. I mean, for me, this was one of those reads that I encountered a couple of years ago and it just absolutely flipped the entire way I look at the world and made me realize that I've really been missing a huge chunk of it up until now. Yeah. The bonded storage thing. I think that was, I, 
I'm not a fan of the landlord aspect of it or the court system stuff, but I think what really pissed me off the most was the freaking storage thing because there's they know that there's absolutely no way that these people are going to get their stuff back, but they're going to try to bleed them dry until predatory. Yes. It's like buzzards circling around these people and it's just icky. Yes, thank you. Icky. Yes. Yes, it's just so predatory and fucked up. Yes. So, for all of our listeners out there, if you haven't read the book yet, we're a very, very accepting book club. We take anyone. Here is the rundown. (laughs) This book follows eight families living in Milwaukee between May 2008 and December 2009. Arlene, a single mother, trying to raise her two sons on $20 a month that she has left after paying for their rundown apartment. Scott, a nurse struggling to maintain his sobriety. Lamar, a man with no legs in a neighborhood full of boys to look after who tries to work his way out of debt, and Benetta, who gets drawn into a botched robbery after her hours are cut. Those are just a couple of the stories that we see in this book. But the common thread that connects the eight is the fate of these eight families are in the hands of two landlords, Sharina Tarver, a former school teacher turned inner city entrepreneur, and Tobin Charney, who runs one of the worst trailer parks in Milwaukee. So here's the thing. Even in the most desolate areas of American cities, evictions used to be rare. But when this was written, most poor renting families were spending more than half of their income on housing, and eviction had become all but ordinary, lay on a pandemic, expiring eviction moratoriums, and the picture gets even bleaker. So do y'all have any personal experience with eviction? I realized that for me, reading this made me reevaluate a whole lot and really interrogate my codified perceptions of somebody who gets evicted. Yeah, so I I have been fortunate enough that this hasn't directly affected me. Um but I have witnessed someone experiencing the looming threat of an eviction um secondhand and I have to say I have such a greater understanding for what this person was going through. Quite honestly, I wish that I had read this prior to that because, like you said, it's made me really look hard at my own preconceived ideas surrounding the topic. I think I would have been, I think, I know I would have been way more supportive and empathetic towards this person. And I think, I think everyone should read this book, but if you're in a managerial position, if you're hiring people, I feel like this should be mandatory reading. Um, Mm -hmm. Congrats. You've gotten promoted. Here's, here's a book. (laughs) You're right. Um, because when the author talks about how many how many evictions lead to job losses, I mean, I saw this happen. I the the person that was going through this, I was working with, and luckily they found they found a new apartment. They didn't lose their job, but they were on the way to losing their job, and their life was in complete upheaval. So I just I wish I could have been a better friend because I didn't really understand how pressing that time must have felt for them. So yeah, it's rough. I think like we are conditioned to see this as like a personal failing. Mm -hmm. So when we like get word of somebody in our social circle or something like facing something like this, everyone's kind of been conditioned to sort of be like, wow, yeah, you should work harder when that is not like reading a book like this. Like that's not the answer. You can't dig yourself out of this. Like, no, you need a community to lift you up. But if we're not there to lift folks up well that's on us right exactly yeah then they're just set up to fail yeah um i was also very fortunate and have not had any experience with eviction 
I might have heard a story or two from like a friend of a friend or something. I mean, I think this is was very necessary for me to read to understand about eviction in general. And I obviously learned quite a bit from this book alone, and I hope to continue to learn more about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think reading this has made me really recognize that just how much closer eviction looms for so many people and really like how the pandemic has raised that baseline for everyone across the board and Mm -hmm. how much folks really haven't noticed because you don't really notice until it kind of bumps into your orbit. Um, But also just how easily you can get trapped in that cycle. And once you are the sprawling impact that eviction can have on someone's life. And after I read this book, I started noticing how many standard forms have tick boxes asking about prior eviction history and started wondering, okay, so if somebody takes that box, what's the person who receives that form doing with that information? Like, how is that changing their perception of you? Is that impacting whether or not they approve this form? Like what happens to you then? Mm -hmm. And these questions are on so many forms in so many places where you're just like looking at it and you're like, housing history doesn't feel like it's relevant here, that the impacts just have to be so wide and far ranging. It's absolutely wild. Right. Alrighty. Quick character check. Whose stories are sticking with you? This book follows quite a few families, so I wanted to give space to catch up on those stories before we get right into it. Um, honestly, all of the families that Sharina, as a landlord, uh, had stuck with me because I feel like they were taken advantage of in a lot of ways. Also with Tobin, but um, I feel like there were more with Sharina, so... Those kind of stuck out to me. But Arlene's story broke my heart the most. The hoops that she had to jump through to get housing after being evicted from 13th Street with two children in tow was a lot. Uh, I don't really have I don't really have words. It's just incredibly unfair. And I feel like I'm going to say that a lot. But it is. Because um, it is. Yeah, exactly. It's just incredibly unfair. We can call unfair. it what it is. Yeah. <laughs> the way the system is set up for them to fail, uh, it uh, time and time again, is just... How is that? How is that a thing? How? Aside from that, I would say Vanetta's story really hit me. I feel like she was in a "you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't" kind of situation, and it's hard for me to not feel a connection to a mother who is trying to protect her children in any way that she knew how. And mm-hmm. the it, the system, the state that wasn't going to do it, so she had to take matters into her own hands and. Um, yes, she terrorized, she's terrorized a woman with, and mm-hmm. that's not cool. But also, also she, she was in a horrible, horrible position because she was looking at, do I feed my kids or do I scare this woman and take her purse? Mm-hmm. And I can't like, say that I would, wouldn't have done the same thing. You know, tra- traumatized people do really fucked up stuff. And yes, like, they do. if you put people in these situations constantly, like you're going to see some really, desperate behavior as a means of survival because they're trying to survive exactly literally and if you've never had to make those choices as a means of survival like of course you're not going to be able to understand them and i think like from our cozy homes in the suburbs it's so easy to sit there and like look at headlines in the news and be like wow wild behavior don't understand that but then you read a book like this and you're like okay means of survival is very different in the day-to-day and if we're not like not looking at the whole picture, it's just so easy to miss those kinds of things mm-hmm. and then feel like an idiot mm-hmm. for like thinking the world is totally different and like right. reading a book like this and being like, oh shit, what? Which is 
why when you see these people going to court for these things, they're being judged by judges and they're being prosecuted by these people that haven't been in that situation. Yes. And, and the worst moment of their life. And it's like, okay, well, let's take the context. Right. Exactly. Also, on the I this is a little bit of a tangent. I do this. Um if you're going to have an eviction court with such a high level of people, they need to start, I don't know, having public defenders helping these people that are yes. in this courthouse because they are being fully taken advantage of by people that have have more money than them mm-hmm. and there's absolutely no way for them to have a chance. It's like what's even the point? And that's why half of them don't show up. That like, they know it's too. stacked against them. And they're like, you know, my time is valuable, too. I'm out here just trying to survive. So, like, I'd rather have my job than go to yeah. court. And yeah. they know that, like, not showing up to work isn't going to benefit them. So, like, might as well keep my job and guess I'm losing my house today. That's mm-hmm. the most fucked up system that we have built. And we're like, yep, it works. Yeah. Check. I have no terrifying. clue that that's how, how eviction court was. No clue. Yeah. It's just, like, kick a person while they're down. Yeah, you know? personal responsibility your way out of that one. Good luck. Ugh. Did you all catch that stat that three out of four families who qualify for like public assistance and go- or government assistance for housing don't actually receive it? Did y'all see that in the book? I missed that. I th- I think but that's I did. terrible. I feel like there were so many stats where I was but like, you were just like, oh, Jesus, what? <laughs> <Rice> one too. <laughs> Yeah, there was a stat in there. And I think it was like the wait list and how the wait list was frozen. And like, if you were gonna get on the wait list, it was like all of these hoops that you would have to jump through. And it's like, you've got to first do this and like, give up access to like this house that you're in right now and like hope that the wait list like, you know, unfreezes and like wait two years. And it's just like, this absolutely wild burdensome process. And it lays out just kind of like all of the red tape that you've got to cut through to get through that and then mm-hmm. it's like yeah three out of four families who qualify who like meet the eligibility requirements like essentially like mm-hmm. because we've made it so inaccessible and then we sit back and we're like well i mean there are all these programs like we can't understand why people can't you know get back on their feet like there's help available and if you don't recognize that three out of four people who we've made this help available to can't actually access it like sure it's very easy to think that mm-hmm people are like, this is a failing of personal responsibility. But if you've ever tried to like submit government forms, I mean, to like, even just like thinking about like trying to like go to the DMV and get your license, like do that, but like put your house on the line. But put everything on the line. And right. you, have just, you have to go to these crowded buildings and wait in line forever. Just like, um, I think it was Lorraine. Is that, that's her name. Mm-hmm. When she went, she had to go get her food stamps back and she had to, and she had to sit there for, she said that she's usually sat there for like an entire afternoon. Um, but she sat there for like two hours and then she finally got there and they're like, oh, well, you have to do this paperwork. And it's like, we, you couldn't have told me that before I waited for two no, hours. Two hours beforehand. Come and on. it's like that with all, every, any type of assistance that you need. And if you have children, you have to bring them with you. And if it's yeah. winter in Milwaukee, you have to, you know, get there with public transport or however else you do in, mm-hmm. you know, knee deep snow or however it is. And it's just set up to fail. No, like you contrast that with like people who are so privileged that they're like paying for services that like stand in line at them in the DMV and like hold their place until it's like you're next come jump in line and like jump in line and take their place and like get their picture renewed and like get their license and walk out and that's like their one interaction with like 
government services in like 10 years and like you know they forget about it right and that's just such a contrast it's infuriating mm-hmm. mp right. did any of this stick with you or did you just get lost in the, the characters <laughs> So, yeah, since I listened to the audiobook, it was very difficult to keep track of all the stories. I kind of like mixed a lot of them together. But I think the ones that stuck with me are the ones that he talked about the Mm -hmm. most, which was Arlene's, Scott. So those ones I felt like I got a good handle on. But any of the other ones, ones I kind of got confused with, to be honest. I do realize I probably should have told you this one is – it's not going to translate well to an audiobook. Maybe. No, it's (laughs) – it's all good. I mean, I still got like the gist like of everything. And I feel like I I mean, it was all sad. Like I'm sufficiently bummed out, so mission accomplished. <laughs> I'm still yep. sad, so I'm really you, bummed. You did your job. It worked. Yeah. I feel like just all of the people in this book were always doing the most and getting the least in return. And it's mm-hmm. heartbreaking to see. Like Arlene painting a whole ass house when she moved into that 13th Street house just to get evicted and then have to jump through all of those hoops to find her next. I mean, come on. When is the last time Mm. that you painted the entirety of a house that you don't own? Because I will say never. And I'm still a renter. In this book, I think the thing that I kept seeing was people like moving to these spaces and they were like doing everything in their power and making all of these personal sacrifices to make their spaces just feel like a little bit more comfortable or, I mean, a little bit less unsafe, perhaps. And they would just get kicked out two seconds later and have to do the whole thing over again somewhere else. And it was infuriating and heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Okay, so moving on. One of my favorite parts of this book is actually the end when he reflects back on the project as a whole. There's this one quote in particular where he says, I wanted to try to write a book about poverty that didn't focus exclusively on poor people or poor places. Poverty was a relationship, I thought, involving poor people and rich people alike. This sent me searching for a process that bound poor and rich people together in mutual dependence and struggle. Eviction was such a process. Page 317. I really appreciated this book for all of the ways in which it forced me to really see myself in this privilege. And it's got me rethinking all of these things, like the concept of owning multiple homes and investment property. I mean, I think we see people do this all of the time when, you know, they outgrow, quote unquote, their starter home and, oh, instead of selling it, we'll rent it and we'll like, you know, move into our next house. Is it an investment property or are you holding on to an opportunity for home ownership that someone else doesn't get to have now because we aren't letting go of it? And so I just, I really appreciated this book for all of those things that it really forced me to identify with that, that rich mindset that I think oftentimes it doesn't, you don't have yourself seeing yourself in. So any mindset shifts for you? Uh, ouch. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, well, it's funny that you mentioned the, uh, the investment properties thing, because when we were looking, when we were talking about moving out of our old house, we had thought that we would do that exact same thing um but we had decided that it wasn't it wasn't worth it wasn't for us we we didn't want to be in charge of a property and um i'm really glad that we didn't because you'd be feeling really morally conflicted right now i i really would (laughs) i really would i feel like i would be a i'd be the nicest landlord yes how can i fix that for you (laughs) um yeah there's been a definite shift in mindset um i think 
I don't know, with everything going on in the world and then reading stuff like this, I feel like I've be I'm just becoming more and more cognizant of the privileges that I have. And this this reading in particular has given me such more so much more empathy for others and what they're going through and they continue to go through. And I want to, I just, I want to stay in my lane. I want to share. I don't want to gatekeep. I don't know if that really makes sense, but it makes sense in my head. Like I just, I want to, I want to contribute more and like let people, you know, you know. Yeah, no, that's like literally it. I feel like historically just like we have like a history of overstepping everywhere always. And so now Mm -hmm. like, doing these things feels weird. And it's like, oh, am I pulling, like, is this weird? Am I pulling back? And it's like, no, this is exactly it. Like we're doing what we should be doing now. Like this yeah. is it. Yeah. I love this. I'm just, I'm humbled. My eyes are open and I'm humbled. And yeah, it's humbling. Yeah. Same. Okay. Just like co-sign. <laughs> co-sign to that. Just yes. nothing to add. Co-sign. I'm signing off on that. <laughs> <laughs> Everything she said. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there was that one quote where he says, there are two freedoms at odds with each other, the freedom to profit from rents and the freedom to live in a safe and affordable home on page 308. Mm -hmm. And like, is that not just the most depressing thing that you have ever heard? Like if the trade-off as a landlord in these situations is either profit from somebody's rent and deny somebody affordable and safe housing or don't profit from rent and like get out of the game, mind your own business, stay in your lane. Like catch me minding my own business. Denying yes. somebody else the freedom to live in safe and affordable housing? Mm-mm. No way. I don't want to make a profit off of someone's safety. No. I don't like it. It's just And sad. just like their human rights. <laughs> you know? I I feel like in these situations, not only do you have to deny your tenants humanity mm-hmm. because you're quite literally denying them access to safety. But I feel like you're also in doing this, like kind of denying a bit of your own humanity because that's a monstrous thing to do. Yeah. And you can think about it as like capitalism, whatever, like we've all got to make a profit. Like, sure. But there are very real people like writing you those checks. Like, do you remember that one sentence where Sharina called, was it Arlene maybe? And asked about like, hey, you're late on the rent. Remember that money I fronted you from your sister's funeral costs? Mm -hmm. And it was like she couldn't finish the sentence. And it's like, yeah, you can't finish the sentence because, like, where is your humanity? You've lost it. Like, you can't say it because it's unspeakable. Yeah. Your soul is slowly slipping away from you. (laughs) Yeah. So. Um, On the topic of the rich-poor dichotomy, there was this really interesting observation that compared to wealthier areas, residents in poorer neighborhoods are much more likely to help their neighbors. And I think that's totally true, just based on, like, my own lived experience of, you know, being in, like, the spaces that I exist in and neighbors are like, yeah, fuck it, sink or swim. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> they're like, yeah, you're out on your own. We are really into, like, fences and gates and keeping our own spaces. I heard that on Glennon Doyle's podcast recently. She was speaking about why she moved from Florida to California mm-hmm. and was talking about, like, this impulsive reflex in the area in which she was living in Florida to, like, protect your own stuff like stand your ground ah gatekeep and it's that whereas like in some of these poorer areas people just have to band together as a matter of survival and so you do mm-hmm. and interestingly residents in the trailer park often seem to feel that evictions were quote-unquote deserved understood to be the outcome of individual failure on page 179 mm-hmm. and if we take a step back and compare that to the attitude of 
or compare that attitude of personal shame to the very frequent protests from the early 20th century when renters opposed landlords and saw themselves as a combined class with shared interests and a unified purpose. Mm -hmm. Boy, have things changed. Attitudes have shifted dramatically in the past 100 years or so. I do not like it. And we've really kind of like shifted the burden of that blame onto the people at the the end of this, like the people at the very bottom who are getting evicted yeah. and have said like, okay, you fix it, figure it out. It's your problem now. What do y'all think about this? Um, I hate it. <laughs> uh, these people, they're not lazy and it's not that they just need to work a little bit harder. They are trapped in a cycle that is designed to keep them in it because there's profit. Um, and it's, I looked this up on Google. Thank you, Google machine. Um, it's an illusory truth effect. I had to look it up because I knew that there had to be a phrase for what this phenomena is, where after hearing it and living it and being in this cycle for so long, you just start to believe the people holding you hostage in the system. Um, mm-hmm. If we were talking about a relationship, I'd say it's toxic and you need to get out. Yeah, I don't like it. I guess I kind of see it as a toxic relationship as well. I can see how they would easily be sucked into that cycle. It's as if they are almost being gaslit, if that's the correct Mm -hmm. term. It's easy to start to believe misconceptions about yourself, especially when it's not just a person saying it over and over again Mm -hmm. and basically shoving it in their face. It's that it's an entire government that says that they are the problem. Mm -hmm. When in reality, that's far from the truth. It's like our whole society. Like, we've all been preached this myth of, like, meritocracy for so long, and we've all bought it. And we all just internalize our struggles as personal failures instead of the system failing us in so many ways. Mm -hmm. This one's so dumb because I catch myself buying into it sometimes every now and then. I feel like this manifests itself as hustle culture these days. And it's so easy for people to shift into this mindset where they're looking down on people who are struggling because we think that they're just not hustling as hard as we are, when in actuality, no one is hustling harder than the people who are just trying to stay in their homes and the game is rigged against them. And we haven't been paying attention. And the reason we're not paying attention is because it hasn't hit close enough to us yet. And the second it does, we'll start paying attention and we'll realize that this can happen to anyone, including us. And the second it does, we'll finally open our eyes to how stacked against all of us the system is. And like, right. once you're in, it's so hard to get out. It's just so easy to stay apathetic about eviction because it feels like it's not going to ever impact us. Mm-hmm. But I think this book really helped me realize that, you know, you can't say that confidently. Right. You never, it, like, look at look at Scott. Scott was a yeah. nurse. And you know, he had, he had a beautiful apartment in the city and all it took was a back injury that led to an addiction that he could not control, which is an illness. And yeah, next, happens. and, and look where he, he, you know, where he ended up, he ended up in a trailer park and, you know, it was so much work for him to get himself out of that. So you never know if you never know where you could end up. And like so many people would look at his story and be like, yeah, that's on him. Like, shouldn't have gotten addicted, should have, like, you know, paid his rent on time, instead of, like, looking at all of the ways in which we failed him with, like, over-prescribing opioids, letting so, pushing so many people into addiction, not even letting them, pushing them. Mm -hmm. Like, I was going to say letting because, like, we prescribe people opioids and then just, like, don't even check in on them and, like, right, "Eh, we'll see what happens. Addiction. Addiction's what's going to happen. But it's not even that. We actively push these pills on people, so... 
It's more than that. But like, there are so many places where our systems fail people. And then because it's kind of like invisible and insidious, unless you're in it, it's so easy to stand on the sidelines and be like, huh, weird, not trying as hard as I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then it's like, it feels really, really icky and humbling to realize that from the sidelines where we're standing to be like, I've been hustling very hard because like, yeah, we're all trying hard. Mm -hmm. But it's a very humbling like mindset shift of like, oh, nope, mm -mm. got it. Reframe. But, but they're, yeah, they're working 10 times harder Much than harder me. Much harder than me. Absolutely. 100%. For basic needs. 100%. And while struggling with addiction and while struggling yes. with multiple children and, so many more you know, me. mental illnesses and all of these things that are unchecked and not taken care of because they have to mm-hmm. choose between taking care of themselves or putting a roof over their head. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just so wild how we like frame the story in society. Mm-hmm. But anywho, moving on to something much more upbeat. Can we spend a second talking about how children play into things here? Mm-hmm. We saw much more upbeat. We saw the folks with children, Arlene, Vanetta, Pam, Ned, frequently up against additional hurdles that the people without kids might not face. That's so very mm-hmm. backwards. So very backwards. I can think of few things more disruptive to a kid than lack of stable housing. And as we saw here, one eviction kicks off a cycle of more housing instability and it spirals. And I think one of the things that was really good at illustrating this point was when we saw we saw one of the tenants going to look at housing and they were like looking at an apartment. They inquired about a bathtub to like give their kids baths. Mm -hmm. The landlord like faked a phone call and was like, oops, that unit's rented. Sorry, no. Yeah, that was for then Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you, Vanetta. And then like later the author called and was like, Oh yeah, hey, I'm inquiring. I'm a single guy. Would love a bathtub. They were like, Oh yeah, we can totally get you in that unit. Hmm? That is housing discrimination. I hate mm-hmm. that. 100%. Yeah. Let's talk about that. I'm infuriated. Yeah. The the aspect with the children in this was, it was hard because they have to grow up so much faster and they, and they get sucked into the cycle as well because of the trauma and it's a constant one and There's no telling how this trauma is going to manifest in all of these children. It's just completely unfair to them. It's unfair to everyone. But um, I think the part that broke my heart the most was when Vanetta ended up um, being convicted and having to go to prison. And her son just stood there like stone faced as he watched his mom walk away. And like, it's all of a sudden this boy who is already, he's five, Mm -hmm. I think, and is acting as like the man of the house is now, you know, without his mom and he has his two younger, I think two younger siblings. And it's just at five. Yeah. At five, at five. We're just like creating legions of traumatized kids. Yes. Yes. Sad. We're essentially making sure that the children of these parents can't build those skills yeah and repeat the same paths as their parents and keep giving these people business that are making because they don't know anything else and they truly cannot do anything else and like for people who haven't experienced trauma it's really 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 hard to understand all of like the very very real ways in which it truly incapacitates like your decision making and like changes the way in which you think and like to have that start at such a young age as, like, a kid sustain trauma and then be, like, don't understand why, you know, mm-hmm. this keeps happening. And it's a cycle that, like, generations can't break out of. 
Yeah. It's because we've designed it like that. Like we've literally architected it. Yeah. MP, do you have any words? Some. <laughs> like a couple. I'll try. <laughs> um, I don't know. I feel like a, like a broken record because it just it, – this breaks my heart. And maybe this breaks it the most is the fact that these poor children who have no control of the situation like we were just talking about, the fact that they're stuck and that kills me. And I'm just – like Courtney said, I'm thinking of like all the long-term effects this probably has and it's just very unfair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. I mean, I think it's okay to be a broken record with this one because mm-hmm. it's unfair, it's heartbreaking, it's infuriating. And like that's okay to say all of those things because this situation is all of that and more. Yeah. And if people aren't shouting it from the rooftops, who's list like who is? No one's listening, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's okay to be a broken record. Yeah, this was the saddest part of the book for me, too. The way that he opened the book with a story about Arlene's boys, Jory and his cousin, just being kids, playing in the snow, and how a rogue snowball ultimately ends up costing them their house, kicks off this whole cycle of eviction after eviction. Just the absolutely, just a heartbreaking story. And when I was a kid, there was this church parking lot down the street from my parents' house. And every time we got a snow day, all the neighborhood kids would show up and we would build snow forts. We would hang out for truly hours, like sunset to sundown, mm-hmm. um, building our dumb little forts in the piles in, that the plow trucks would make in the corners of the parking lot. So much fun. We, When we were done building our forts, we'd have snowball fights. I'm sure that we weren't just throwing them at each other. Mm-hmm. Inevitably, we were throwing them at passing cars sometimes. I'm sure of it. I don't have any concrete memories of this because I'm sure throwing snowballs at passing cars was never really a defining moment of my childhood. It never cost me my house. Right. So, but, you know, I'm sure that we did it because we were little shits. That's mm-hmm. that's being a child. And, yeah, life is weird like that. Never, mm-hmm. never defined my childhood and kicked off housing instability. But you see how, like, such a simple act like that just, what the fuck? Right. Yeah. This book is written in third person to shine a spotlight on just the rampant inequality in the U.S. housing system. Wow, we hate it. So he does a pretty good job constructing this impartial, really well-researched account of this very, very big issue. But at the same time, this author did make conscious choices to include and exclude certain details. And something that I want to spend some time with, Sharina and Tobin have basically the same net worth on pages 152 and 175. We see that. I didn't catch this the first time I read it. We detail the ways that Sharina spends her money very extensively. We're talking about gambling at a casino, the braids in Jamaica, a matching purse and fur-lined boots, her red, her quote-unquote lipstick red Camaro, and the descriptions of how Tobin spends his wealth. We say he drives a Cadillac. That's it. Absent. Mm. I'm so mad I didn't notice this the first time I read this book, but I think it's really interesting how the author paints Sharina, a black woman, in contrast with Tobin, a white man. I think these details are doing some subtle yet powerful work in shaping our perception of these two landlords. Mm. What do y'all think? Yeah, I definitely found myself wondering more about Tobin, um, but not getting any answers on him. Perhaps I think in my head, I'm just like, well, he just didn't allow that glimpse into his life like Sharina did, um, where she was maybe more open to letting 
uh, the author come along with her on her daily tasks. I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm bummed that she came off uh, as more of a villain than Tobin. Mm-hmm. And I think that has a lot to do with that ingrained w- view of how women should be. Should be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where they're supposed to be caretakers and less ruthless in business. Right. But women. Why are you nurturing? Right. But women can be assholes too. Uh, it, doesn't, can it doesn't make her any worse than Tobin was. It's just that we hear about it more. So that, yeah, that's, that's disappointing. I, I wonder what the reasoning behind that was because the author doesn't, he doesn't, doesn't seem like someone who would, you know, purposefully do that, but it's kind of, it's a, it's a disappointment. Um, on a slightly different, um, but notable note, why didn't he follow any families of different races? Um, he, they meant, he mentions, yeah, he mentions the Hispanic neighborhoods in the book, but they aren't represented. So maybe, maybe there were logistical reasons for that too. Who knows? But, um, I would be interested to see like that viewpoint as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. That would be interesting mm-hmm. to see that. Um, like I said before, I listened to the audiobook, and to be honest, I barely remember Tobin's story. So, so forgettable. Yeah, he was not very, very forgettable. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, I hope it's not on purpose that he did that. I mean, either way, it's unfortunate that it had a negative effect on the way we perceive Shrina's um, character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Courtney, I love what you mentioned about just like a broader representation of how eviction impacts different communities. Mm-hmm. I think that's so needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and something something this author has been up to since he published this book is he has launched the Eviction Lab with a bunch of other researchers at Princeton, I believe. And they've been doing a bunch of research on eviction, the wide ranging impacts of it all of that stuff. And so they do actually have some really cool data visualizations on all that jazz, how it is localized and what eviction looks like in your area. Like the stats for different zip codes. I was kind of poking around with the stats in there and comparing all the different places I've lived and what that looks like presently. And I was like seeing the differences in honestly, like the localized eviction moratoriums and currently like how that impacts it. Mm -hmm. So this feels like kind of maybe a piece of work that really kicked off some really important eviction research. It was done in 2008 and it really maybe seems like people weren't like researching this, talking about it, whatever mm-hmm. in a focused way until then. And then like he did this and got some momentum going and we carried on. Yeah. Much needed mm-hmm. because like definitely once this topics on your radar, you start thinking about all the different ways in which it spirals into different communities and you start wondering where those stories are. And you're like, I want to, I want to hear more about those people too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Give them a voice. Yeah. Okay. So fast forward a few years. Let's talk about the eviction moratorium. This is honestly a perfect transition from his research with the eviction lab. Mm-hmm. Eviction was a growing crisis when this book was published in 2016, when he researched it in 2008 and 2009. COVID-19 has accelerated that it's turned it into a crisis of epic proportions Mm. to try to slow that role the cdc implemented an eviction moratorium it's just expired so it has been in place for the last 11 months and based on research from the eviction lab it has prevented at least 1.55 million eviction filings that's 1.55 million families that's wild when you say 1.55 million eviction filings you're like paperwork but then when you say 1.55 million families like wait people yeah hold on families families and look how many like look how many 
uh, people in like Doreen's family were living in right. that apartment. And exactly. yeah, sometimes they there's multiple families in a in a place. Right. That's that is a lot. So many significant. People. So many people. So present state CDC bans expired. There are a couple remaining state bans that are all but over. They're lingering. Like California's expires September 30th, mm-hmm. five days from when we're taping this. Um, we have a whole bunch of families at risk of losing their homes. And also we have, again, in a common theme with all of this housing instability, a bunch of unspent relief money meant to help tenants facing eviction that people haven't been able to access. Yeah. Because again, we're ace at distributing stuff <laughs> to the people who need it. There's one thing we're good at. It's that. Yeah. Jesus. So I just keep coming back to this last sentence from the eviction labs research on the impact of the moratorium. And they say protections afforded by the moratorium helped to reduce the threat of displacement, but did nothing to address the underlying racial and gender disparities in eviction rates, nor the concentration in hard hit neighborhoods. So I want to hang out here for a minute. After reading this book, this landed really differently for me because they have such a point like the eviction moratorium really just put a pause on things. But during that pause, we didn't actually address all of the reasons that these people are struggling. Mm-hmm. And until we do that, we're not fixing this. Right. It's because uh, they have money to lose. And I say they, I mean, yeah. um, the government. Landlords, Landlords. Capitalism. Everyone. All that. Yeah. So why, why work on something like that? They just continue to set it up for fail. And I have... Too fail. They have yeah, too fail. And I have I have another question. What do you think this moratorium ending will do to COVID numbers? Um, because Wolf. could it cause another surge mm-hmm. having all of these people forced into shelters? Because as we know, in more impoverished neighborhoods, that uh, these people are less likely to be vaccinated because they can't get time work. It's not readily available to them and so on. And then are these shelters prepared for the amount of people that will be soon evicted from their homes at the drop of a hat? Is there an infrastructure to ensure that this large number of people are safe until they can find housing? I highly doubt it. Down and on all those fronts, all these shelters are like scrapping by with the resources they have. That is... Right. Can't be doing good things Mm -hmm. for our COVID numbers. No. No. It's a lot. They've had 11 months, 11 months to, to work on this. And it's mm-hmm. just like, yeah. Yeah. It's like they're putting a Band-Aid on the problem yeah. instead of taking the time to fix the underlying mm-hmm. problem. Mm-hmm. Um, they're being set up to fail once again. And it just would have been more helpful <laughs> if they would have fixed the underlying problem like during those 11 right. months. And that would have made more of a change. But But there are so many. Well, even if Mm -hmm. they could have just looked at a few of them while they're just while they're not dealing with while they're not dealing with like all of these eviction filings and these court cases and all that kind of stuff. Take that. Let's fix some things. Take that free time to to work. Let's address some of those racial and gender disparities. eh? Please. Thank you. Please. Please. (laughs) Just please. Honestly. Yeah. It can't be good for COVID. I mean, it just cannot be. But mm-hmm. if there's one thing we like to do in this country, it's follow the science. I know that much is true. <laughs> or fix the root cause of something. We love both of those things here. We're really good at them, and we like to do those things. So <laughs> we are doing great. All right. That's that for that, y'all. I don't have anything else to say. 
Me Do you either. have anything else to say? Nope. Neither. Are we sufficiently <laughs> depressed? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Great. Yep. Have I brought you down to my level? Always. <laughs> Mission accomplished, baby. But my listeners are now as bummed out as I am. But, bingo, bingo. But it's yes, I'm sad. But there, there are sad things in this world, and I feel like we need to be more aware of these things that are unfair because real people are affected by it. Yes, you know? I really like that. That's a perfect mm-hmm. summary, Courtney. Yeah, yes. that's that for that. <laughs> We're ending on that. Now it's time where we wrap things up with a one-sentence summary. We need to do better. Jesus, yes. Absolutely. I'm going to steal Courtney's favorite word because this was very much heart-wrenching. Mm, and I didn't use yes. that phrase at all this time. I know. It kind of makes it hard. <laughs> no. It's because I've been watching my heart-wrenching words. You've I been said heart-breaking to- instead. So. You've been trying to wrench your heart less? <laughs> All right, here's mine. Fix this shit. <laughs> Please. That's all I have. That's all really? I have for you. <laughs> yeah. That's what I got. I hear it, though. And that's that for that. As always, we will be dropping our upcoming reads in the show notes, along with some cool links from the Eviction Lab, where you can see the eviction data in your own area. If you want to read along for next time, you know where to find us on Instagram at realfriends underscore podcast. Coming up next, we have the seven and a half deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, a whodunit like no other. There's twists. There's turns. There's a man in a plague mask. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and after that, we have Rebecca. Spooky season is upon us, friends. So, hey, let's read a haunted love story. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I love these themed reads. I love it. After that, bring it home just in time for Thanksgiving. The Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor, a writer, poet, educator, and performer. She brings us the message that self-sacrifice and self-flagellation keep us from our highest good. Her manifesto on radical self-love is life-altering. Required reading, y'all. That's what Goodreads said. We'll see if it steers me wrong. Who knows? I believe it. Me too. And I need it. Yes, it's me too. It's gonna be a good one. <laughs> All right, y'all. We are real friends who read books. I'm America. I'm Courtney. And I'm Mary Page. Get to reading. We'll see y'all in two weeks. Bye. 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 If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and follow wherever you listen to podcasts. If you find yourself on Instagram, check out our page at realfriends underscore podcast. And special thanks to Brandon Schrunk for our theme music. couple of Clydesdales on my stairs. And that's our blooper. (laughs) (laughs) That is a perfect one.